Welcome back, everybody, to the Self Storage Income Podcast. We have another incredible episode lined up for you today. But before we get into that, huge shout out to all of our amazing sponsors Janice International, Store Local, Live Oak Bank, and Tenant Inc. Be sure to check out the links in the show notes. You guys probably hear us talking about these guys on the podcast all the time. Janice International, tons of amazing people, tons of amazing products, services, their Noki service, their R3 program, all these different aspects to help you build an amazing storage facility or upgrade your storage facility. Uh, just a fantastic group. Store local. It's honestly one of the biggest threats to self-storage is, is market consolidation and everything that goes along with that. So enter Store Local, the largest storage co-op in the world. Just amazing people again, tons of tons of awesome people there and uh, amazing solutions to bring everybody's resources together and uh, utilize those in an effective way to be able to compete and also uh, thrive in a world of competition with some of these larger REITs and the big players in the self-storage industry. Check out Store Local. Amazing, amazing opportunities there. Live Oak Bank. I don't know how many of you guys came to our live event in Coeur d'Alene just this past year, but uh, we had some amazing conversations with Live Oak Bank there, and they were probably one of the most popular uh, <laughs> topics there in our, our breakout sessions. And And people want to know. They, they want to know the financing. You guys want to know what the solutions are, what the deals look like, all these different aspects to financing. Live Oak Bank is that answer specifically for self-storage. They specialize in storage, which is just incredible. There's no learning curve for them to understand the asset. They know it. They've been there before, and they can help you see things that you might not even be seeing yourself. So Live Oak Bank, amazing. Check the link in the show notes. And last but not least, Tenant Inc., Tenant Inc. is an incredible slew of products and services, essentially, for your storage facility to help automate, to help streamline, to help optimize your business and your storage facility. They've got uh, their Hummingbird platform, Nectar platform, uh, their Mariposa platform. Just to scrape the surface here, their, their property software, the big thing about this is the API is open. So you guys can actually, you, you own your data, you can use other third parties and back that into your systems. It's not this closed system that, that only uses proprietary X, Y, and Z. You guys have total control over your data, total control over these various aspects of running your business, uh, running your storage facility. And uh, they just got some amazing products. Again, these are storage owner operators that have created and developed these solutions. And uh, it, it's just an amazing platform. So check it out. Without further ado, guys, here's the episode. Looking to create wealth and income through high cash flowing real estate? Self storage is the fastest growing and the newest real estate asset that has outperformed all others. What's its secret? I'm AJ Osborne, and with over a million square feet that we have built, acquired, expanded, and even converted big box stores from small third tier markets to large hundred plus thousand square foot facilities, we have seen it all. This is the podcast that we're going to discuss and bring on the best investors and operators in the nation to show you how to create wealth and income with self-storage. Welcome to Self-Storage Income. Welcome, everybody, to Self-Storage Income, the largest self-storage podcast out there with the one and only Connor. How you doing, man? Oh, doing awesome, dude. Yeah. Well, thanks for the, the great intro. That's right, man. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's a fantastic podcast. And dude, just uh, feel amazing to be here and be along for the ride and just be able to connect with so many of these people. Oh, it's um, crazy. 
You know, it was wild at the event um, uh, that we had in Coeur d'Alene yes. just a couple months ago, our sales storage income event uh, with store local and all that stuff, which was just incredible. Yeah, it was um, out of this world. Like, awesome. I'm still coming down off of that high, yeah, dude. It, it was, was so insane. Um, but it was it was funny because, like, I'd be walking around and just kind of meeting people, and everybody's kind of meeting people and just not really, like, because you're not always looking at people's name tags or whatever. And then, yeah. like, I start talking, and they're like, Oh, hey, like Connor from the podcast. I'm I like, listen to you all the time. <laughs> yeah, dude. And then it's weird when it's like, <laughs> listen to you so uh, much. And now <laughs> hearing you and you're uh, not yeah. talking out of a speaker. Yeah. Yeah. But all said and done, it's just amazing to connect with all these awesome people, have yeah. such great support. Seeing the success of this podcast has just been amazing. And I uh, just love kicking out all these awesome topics that we've got coming down the line every single week, whether it's YouTube or here on the podcast, yeah. it's just so cool to be a well, part of. And I think the thing that I've really enjoyed um, about the podcast in, in, in general is, you know, some of our tenants and when I decided to actually start making content, which I hadn't ever before, um, it was a, just a pure way that we could like, listen, we want to talk about and allow people to see what's going on behind the scenes, right? And what are real issues, what are real topics and subjects that operators, large ones, are dealing with, give them inside look. And it's been awesome for us to just take certain topics. And a lot of these topics that we're tackling, I mean, they're topics that are like, oh, this is a concern right now. Let's get on talk about what we're doing and how we're how we're dealing with it real world. And that just wasn't around when we got started. And that would have been such a huge help for me, the firm, and just to, and two, it's, you know, I'm not saying necessarily that we would have even changed anything, but the amount of unknowns when you're not doing something is, it seems unlimited. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, even if I'm really confident in this, I just don't know what I don't know. Dude, that's such a, and it's such a time suck learning those yeah. things and having to deal with those problems. And to listen but, to oh, people talk dude. about, look at this, watch out for this, capitalize on this. Like, it, it just, I don't know. It would have really, I think, sped things up uh, and helped out. So I really hope everybody that, you know, we're executing on that for you guys, um, that it's, helping you guys. We're giving you a true inside look on how the sausage is made when you're dealing with real estate investment, private equity firms, people that are investing, which we've, you know, done all personally with other investors, you know, I mean, really the gambit. And I, it allows us to talk from a perspective, I think that is also very different seeing how we have done in all those ways. Um, we started managing and everything by necessity, but we do all aspects of the business. Everything. We we centrally integrate everything. We bought technology companies for it. So it gives us a different perspective or a wider range of those things. And I sit on store locals uh, board, um, which is the largest storage co-op uh, in the world. It's thousands of, of storage facilities where, you know, there's, I think there's only two REITs in the world that are bigger than our association. And that also allows us to get this national perspective with vendors or excuse me, not national worldwide. We, we, are, we have national national perspective with our assets. And, um, it, it has been, uh, this practice and this sharing this content has, uh, been so good for us in our business meaning it allows us to 
think through things, identify problems, have a time where we're actually talking, discussing with them, share issues that we're seeing out in the industry and create a community. So we're able to get deals from this, investors from this. We're able to create a community that is centered solely around storage. So a lot of the content out here has different purposes, right? This may be high sales coaching programs. It may be an engine for their money maker, right? Where, or it may be a money maker where ours is an engine to do what we do and do real estate, right? And that pays off for us in leaps and bounds, but it also creates evergreen content and realistic content without a catch, you're yeah. never going to hear me say, oh, well, I'm not going to talk about that. You have to right. go pay me or buy a course. <laughs> we don't have anything like that. Yeah. And I think that's been a huge reason why this podcast has just blown up and has been so successful is we're, we're, we're being as open mm -hmm. as literally possible. And yeah. yet we have a unique perspective alongside side it. And it, uh, it shows in the numbers. And it's, it really it's been does. awesome. Yeah. Well, I mean, you even had somebody on YouTube the other day. I saw a comment. Somebody was saying, like, what gives, man? Like, you, you're doing all this stuff to, like, sell a $5 book on Amazon or whatever it was. Like, some yeah. kind of comment where it's like, why are you doing all of this? Kind of. Yep. Uh, which you've we gotten that a lot. quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, it's like, why would you do this? And, and you just hit the nail on the head where you're creating a strong community that can go out and therefore create strong self-storage markets. And it, and again, I mean, you're always talking about self-storage being the biggest threat to self-storage. And uh, we're actually gonna talk about self-storage and yep. the riskiness today. Uh, but the, I, th I think you've had that a lot. I mean, both from people from the outside and even from within the team, like, oh dude, like, are you sure you wanna do this? Like, yes. you, wanna, you, you wanna, wanna give this away. Do you right, wanna talk about right. this? And this is our secret like, sauce. Yeah, dude. Like, uh, yeah. It, and it does. It comes down to risks. It comes down to purpose, first of all. Um, first of all, I don't believe that if I'm if you're if you're listening to all our podcasts, if you're going onto YouTube, if you're following me on Instagram, right, you have all the tools to build a ginormous real estate empire. You do. And I don't view that as a competition towards me. We're at totally different versions. I have different strategies. We have different, right? But what I hope that we're doing is we're creating competition that doesn't hurt me. So when we started Store Local, it was from Lance, who's been on the podcast that talks about technology in the industry. It's a it's a co-op, so it's like kind of like a nonprofit thing, right? We're all together. We serve on it. We utilize resources so we can buy things for individual operators at scale. Right. So it's a true co-op. We pool resources so we can act like the big boys. And the purpose with when we started this, which was I don't even know, a decade ago or whatnot, was we realized that there's an incoming threat. And the incoming threat to self-storage is self-storage. And it's in two forms. And this hits at the heart of the pot the podcast today and why we do this stuff and why I'm doing this stuff. The threats we knew immediately um were self-storage and um what we what I would call self storage itself, okay, so and um, third parties. And I think that's how I'm going to try to break this down to make sure this makes sense. Now, the third parties, um, I'm going to call these third parties um, more like major franchise systems, okay. Now, this third party piece that we saw coming a long time ago, 15 years, comes when industries consolidate. 
And some industries get broken up into a winner takes all. We see this in technology a lot, like Google, right? Um, it's basically a winner takes all. This also happens in real estate asset classes. We see this in like hotel space, right? When you go to a city, where are you going to stay? Well, you can probably think of four hotel names and that's it, right? In the entire city. So you're going to Hilton, a Marriott, or- No matter where you're no at. No matter where you're at, anywhere. <laughs> yeah. And when you look at that too, the a lot of people, they'll say, well, I, I there's like seven, eight brands. And they'll name off the brands and three of the seven, eight, they didn't even realize were owned by Marriott. <laughs> Marriott owned those other brands. They just operate yeah. them under the name. And That's what true. happens is if I wanted to start and go um, build a hotel and run an operator, a hotel and be an a hotelier and entrepreneur, which I have um, very close friends that do that. Um, Do you work with under the brand name, but it's just not the brand name. You are basically a franchisee. And that industry, it's very hard to survive if you're not. And we saw similar things like that coming into self-storage. And when people say, yeah, but self-storage isn't a hotel. I say, I know, but it's an acquisition process. Mm-hmm. You're talking about consolidation. Consolidation, yeah. things coming in, and it's a in the process of why consolidation happens in certain industries versus others is a, a customer acquisition process. So the reason why the hotel brand names are so big, it's just not because of the brand name. It's their power to catch customers and bring them in via online. And that was the massive consolidator. So that customers looking for hotels, hotel space, they're only going to see a few names. And then the rest of the hotels trying to compete, they're not even competing. So the customer acquisition process flooded in consolidation and made it so individual, smaller operators couldn't compete. Um, We saw this as the biggest threat to self-storage because the same thing in customer acquisition process was happening in self-storage. It still does. When I go into a marketplace, I can judge my competition and I know whether I can outbeat them on customer acquisitions or not. That comes into a huge value add play. It makes my models extraordinarily efficient. It makes me know exactly what we're going to get our customers at, who we're going to take from, how we can compete in any given market. Well, REITs are on this like steroids right? So they know I could take over any brand and just from our customer acquisition process, we can get it. So this was being fueled by technology. So the co-op, we started to allow to give resources to individual operators so that they can remain independent and compete with the biggest of the big. We, We knew that if individual operators can't survive, and if you, person that's listening to this podcast right now, can't survive, well, I can't either, no matter how big I get, because now my acquisition line dries up. There's nobody else to buy. No individual operators are building storage facilities. Nobody's getting into it, trading assets, right? The, entry is a, for the barriers of entry are massive, massive at that point. And all of a sudden, I am have to compete against guys that are worth 50 plus billion dollars. Mm-hmm. Well, even if I have a half a billion dollars in assets, that's nothing. And I can't compete. So- The first threat that we saw was third parties. Now, third parties, we're going to break up into two pieces within the industry, the consolidating factor in nature, making it uncompetitive landscape. Hence the reason we started Store Local. And that's also one of the big reasons why we do this podcast, right? I want you to remain independent. I want you to be in this business. The industry being fragmented is inherently better for me 
as an operator. I have more people to buy from. I do not have to worry because once the REITs buy them, they they max them out. So they're, they're like, if I went to buy a REIT facility, most of the time there's nowhere to go with that. So value add strategy is gone for me, right? So I need a fragmented to some point landscape. Um, it's why we got into it to begin with. The next third party are complete outside third party people that aren't in storage, but they're coming in to disrupt the self-storage landscape. And I view these things as you have certain companies like Clutter, um, different ones like that, that they're trying to change the entire business model of it using, um, we generally speak of like on-demand. So on-demand storage, where you'll see big crates out in front of people's houses where they come in and um, they'll put the big boxes. You can put stuff in there. They can either take them to a storage unit or not, or you have people that will actually come like we're seeing in big cities like San Francisco. And you, they come in, they take all your stuff, you item it on boxes. There's uh, barcode scanning systems, and then you can see your stuff in a storage and get it. Now, how their business model works and the how they believe they're going to be competitive is they're buying land. Let's say you're in San Francisco. They're buying land 10 miles out. That's a fraction of the cost of inside San Francisco. So their cost to enter into storing products is much lower. And then they can just hire people to retrieve and take the stuff back. And they can charge fees associated with it. So the cost for the individual is... Um, it may look on paper cheaper, but once you add in fees, everything else like that, it's almost always higher. Um, and they have an offsite, so it's cheaper. Now, this has been something that's tried to take hold for a long time. On-demand storage is not new. We've seen these things come in, and they do have a place in the market. But I don't. It's nothing like there. Like we don't see like an Airbnb, right, or a. Um, Uber, Uber yeah. of storage. We haven't seen anything like that take hold by any of these companies. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, Self-storage is more of a long-term thing for people. It's a place they go, they work out of, they take stuff out, right? Where is Airbnb or even Uber, it's a short thing. One night or it's um, one ride, done. Here's a little fee, I'm out. Don't even think about it again. Um, so because of that, we haven't seen it. Now, where it takes hold and that business model works really good is where you have people that don't need to store a lot of stuff and only need it once or twice a year. That's generally downtown areas, high rise. People have very limited space, but all I need is skis and a tree stored, right? Yeah, Companies don't use these. You know, <laughs> Generally speaking, you don't have businesses utilizing this, none of that kind of stuff. It's So it's a very specific niche. But on the demand, I do say this, I don't know what I don't know. And so- the idea that we had in store local and that I have now is I don't ever want to be a taxi company saying, oh, it won't affect me. Oh, it won't do that. that there is probably always something looming that is going to attack self-storage. I just don't know what it is. And I don't know what the customers will react and take hold. So we're very aware of that. Hence the reason we got into technology. So we could control a lot more of that. So we have things like on-demand. If on-demand really starts taking hold, well, we can utilize our storage space and back in with an on-demand platform where people can use our space. So we're trying to do a whole bunch of different things like that. Um, but these are the two um, major, uh, what I'll, we'll call this macro side, the larger picture threats that we see going on in self-storage. 
Uh, but these are obviously not the reason why self-storage fails and not the reason why self-storage is actually risky. That is done on a micro level. And we have bought storage facilities from people that went bankrupt. Um, we have bought failing storage facilities. Uh, and there's a couple things that I, I want to get into. Now, first of all, I do not want this to be a doom and gloom ep podcast episode. With that said, I want to be very real about the risks in self-storage. And I also want to call out some things that I think are a blatant not understanding the data that's driving trends, things like that, and that people are using as a strength, which I actually believe is a weakness. And it's very concerning to me because it's generally accepted ideas or theories within self-storage, which I think have fundamental flaws with the assumptions that are drawn from the data. And these flaws um, can get people into a lot of trouble. So what we're talking about here on the real threats and stuff, this is a micro level that I'm usually speaking of. So this is uh, markets that are oversupplied by self-storage or markets that are just shrinking. Okay. So these are within the three mile radius, your inability to compete due to you're not a good competitor, oversupply or a shrinking market. Okay. So these are the three sides that we look at when we're dealing with this. Um, and almost all the time when I see it, this is something that could have been avoided. And this is the most important part that I want to want to hit on, right? So you don't think that I'm getting all too doom and gloom, anything else like that. Almost all of the cases I believe were avoidable from bankruptcies, people that we bought, things like that. Now, I do not believe that that will continue and I'll get into why. All right. So now some more of the doom and gloom. Now, first of all, what I said, a lot of these things are preventable. Um, this can be done to good research up front. And people that are like, well, I don't know how to identify these things, research things. We just launched feasibility studies that we're trying to do alternative services. Feasibility studies are things that we use. So I use feasibility studies, and I think anybody should, especially when you're developing. And I'll talk why within this, but this is an important practice that I'm shocked people don't use or do. Even as an experienced operator, we were using feasibility studies. And I'll get into that in just a second. All right. So the first thing that I want to hit on um, when we're talking about micro and particularly some large fallacies, and I can't believe nobody is talking about this in self-storage, but, and I'm, I'm like, I'm going to be the only one. And I brought it up once and somebody's like, you know, well, I think you're being a naysayer or something. I'm like, hold on here. I am hands down the largest cheerleader for self-storage there is in the industry. <laughs> like literally hundreds of thousands of like, people listen to us. Cheerleader. It's like, yeah, I'm like, come on. <laughs> I wrote the best-selling book on it, on and on. Come on. Don't, so don't hit me with that, people. Don't come back with me saying, you know, I think that that is a, comp a completely naive and poor way of doing business is if you don't look at really real things that are that are coming into it. And a lot of people in the industry don't believe that fits their best self-interest in the form of, well, I don't want an investor to think that this may not go, so I'm not going to say it. Or I don't want a bank to think that there may be problems, so I don't want to do it. I don't want people to not buy my course, or I don't want people to not buy this from me or whatever. So they act like it's, they say things like this is recession proof. They say things like these are cash cows, right? On and on and on, which give this visual, this mental image that self-storage always performs great, that it's just this asset that for some reason can't be broken. Well, we already forgotten the last time that we all agreed that there was an asset that couldn't be broken. What happened? Mm -hmm. Like this is bubble talk. 
Like this is totally bubble talk. And where it came from is from the last recession and uh, COVID, which the last recession, self-storage outperformed all other real estate asset classes. So people are like, yeah, even if we have another credit crisis or another recession, well, we can look back and it'll do the same thing. And this is where the data, um, people are using data and trying to extrapolate it over current um, events, which I do not think holds any water to. Um, and I'll tell you why. So there's a few reasons why self-storage saw the lowest delinquencies, or excuse me, the lowest bankruptcies, uh, defaults, and had um, higher occupancy than any other asset class. Now, before I dive into all the reasons, I think is yes, when people were losing their houses, they were changing, they were going in and they were utilizing storage. Okay. So there were good things that for storage that came out. Now, with that said, storage didn't do good. There's this perception people have that, oh, self-storage survived. So that meant it did good. Now, this is where we get into a big problem. When you're comparing it to the worst ever crisis in real estate that we've seen in the United States to say that it did really good, you're judging it based upon the worst ever recorded of any asset class. So you're comparing it to doomsday, right? Now, when we look at why this did, why were there such low defaults, right? Why were there um, higher occupancy and utilization? One of the things that makes no sense in comparing that to today is twofold. First of all, nobody was in self-storage before. Self-storage wasn't hot. Nobody talked about it. Mm -hmm. Nobody did it, right? So prior to 2008, self-storage was a junkyard that nobody wanted to be in. Banks didn't finance it. They literally thought it was too risky. So the financing that was available wasn't great. So your average loan to value on storage was crazy low. Because people had to put money in it and there wasn't a lot of financial options. So nobody was really leveraged in storage. All the assets had very, very low debt to equity and income on. Not only that, but there also, there was no building cycle. So you're at the end of a development cycle from all these real estate asset classes that were totally bubbled up and boomed. Self-storage did not have that. Now, to give you any idea, we are putting out every single year two three, four, five times the next highest that we ever saw prior to 2008. And this is year after year after year after year after year. It's mind-boggling. We put out more in one year than we did multiple years prior to 2008, and we have been doing it for years. So the development cycle that self-storage was in wasn't big. It wasn't great. There wasn't a lot of inventory on the market. Okay, The debt loads were really low. Um, so there just wasn't a lot of place to go. So even though there was a contraction, there wasn't a lot of inventory. And when we saw higher occupancies, the, one of the major reasons we saw higher occupancies was because self-storage, it's easier to change rates. So although we saw occupancies in the eighties, right? So they're going, oh, well you were 95. Now you're 80. That's a 15% drop, but revenue dropped 45%, right? Where you couldn't do the same thing with other asset classes, they weren't as flexible. You couldn't drop rates and give them away for free and then have 80% occupant. Right? Nobody else could do that. So they were, it was self-storage was more flexible in bad times, which that's a good thing, right? But it also too, though, we, we were buying facilities that not only couldn't fill up, but most of the people that they had weren't paying rent and they were giving three, four months away from rent, free. 
just to get people in the door. And then people wouldn't stay after that. So the revenue was nothing. They couldn't pay their bills. And so even though they had 75, 80% occupancy, they couldn't pay their bills. And so we were buying them. So what the reason why I bring this up is I really want to shed some of these ideas that self-storage will never end. It's going to be great always. And that look at the last time how it performed. I don't know how much more self-storage is on the market today than then, but it's astronomically more. And um, it has been the favored asset to build, develop, and buy for a decade. So we're not it's not the same anymore. Now, once again, this doesn't mean I'm a naysayer or anything else like that at all. I'm building, we're buying, on and on. What it does mean, though, is when we get into this third threat, micro self-storage, that is when this is really important. So if you've overbuilt, if you're in a market where it's overbuilt, right, and a lot of people are saying, well, it's 100% occupied everywhere, this is one of the problems we got into. COVID really helped storage. Everybody got paid. Nobody was defaulting, losing their home, nothing like that. So they were getting paid. They could live in their home. They couldn't move or buy new homes. They were doing lots of home improvement projects. They were doing all sorts of other stuff out of their home. Businesses started working from home. So we actually saw utilization of storage go up, right? And because they're, even though we were in a crisis, for the most part, Americans' pocketbooks weren't in crisis. They weren't having a crisis. They were getting mm -hmm. paid, right? And so nobody was defaulting on storage, but yet we saw demand rise. Um, I call this the COVID bump. It bumped up occupancies in a, a range that is not historically normal at all. Um, and so we're on this like two for one with storage where we're riding a high, everybody. And I don't know how many times it takes, but I, I just think it's, I went through the time when it wasn't a high. And even at that, we weren't even comparable. So um, we got to remember when these big macro trends happen, that can hurt an entire industry as itself, the only thing you control is the micro. So we're really obsessed with micro. Like how many storage facilities have opened up in the last three years? How much inventory is on the market? Where are rates headed? It's all about demand. I'm looking at future demand. How many storage facilities are going into this market? If I'm buying into a market and they have three storage facilities coming up, I'm probably not going to buy into that market because it's not just about the current competitors. It's about what happens if there's a downturn. Um, and we're going to do another podcast and we got a lot of information on housing and self-storage and how they tie together. Uh, but seeing shrinking demand through rising interest rates, is causing a slowdown in the housing market, whatever that may be, right? I don't know what it is. Nobody ever does. But the only thing you can do to fortify all of this is to buy right, make sure that there's demand and make sure that you have upside in that facility immediately. So you can have what I call my margin of stupidity. That's why I have it. That's why I build it in. So that way that I know, I don't know what I don't know, but I'm going to be protected against it. This isn't being over conservative. I'm not an overly conservative person, right? I think that speaks for itself and everything that we're doing, everything I'm developing all over the place. I'm not, but I am very aware that there's so much out there that I don't know, right? I was, I mean, I had clients all over the United States and during the recession that I was working with the C-suites for, and I had to walk through and go hand in hand with these companies as they went under, went bankrupt as developing people, as real estate owners, everything. And it was widespread across the board, right? Um, none of them thought it was gonna happen. And none of them thought it could have happened to them. Why would housing affect manufacturing, 
Why would that, you know, and so we don't always know. So when you go into it, you have to make sure that that micro area has good fundamentals. It's a growing market. Incomes are rising and that it's sustainable and long. It's not a COVID bump. So look at the occupancies when we weren't in COVID, right? So people are underwriting occupancies of what they are today. And I'm like, that's bonkers. Why would you do that? It's historically never been like today. So why do you think it would be? And they're underwriting development at top of the market at 100% occupied mm-hmm. in year one. They're saying they're going to fill up in year one because Bob down Three the road months. did that. Yeah. Three months we saw one. Right. And all I see when I see that, bankruptcy. That's all. Because if you're planning on that, you're planning on the most perfect scenario ever occurring. And that's why I say this micro aspect about buying right, building right, and the strategy around it, that'll make the difference. If you do it right, you can go through hard times and that's fine. Right. So my deals need to work good today when I improve them and when times are bad. And I obviously can't control everything. One of my deals, I'm sure, will fail. It never has. But I mean, come on, it's a numbers game. Right. Oh, yeah. It's still, it, there's it, going to be something. I don't sometime, know when we're in a city you know. and the largest employer goes under, takes down five under other employers, and the population shrinks by 20% because of whatever. I don't know. I don't know when a, f5 hits a city and destroys it tornado i Mm -hmm. like we just don't have control over the thing so that comes into the podcast too that we talked about reducing risk and managing risk qualifying it but the main reason and i can help everybody avoid this is if you get go into it right you it'll play out right focus demand first everything else next and this is why we talk about feasibility studies so what a feasibility study is supposed to tell you is how good that market is and where demand is at right and even though we are we do feasibility studies. We're experts in them. I would go get other feasibility studies so I could compare and see if there was something that I was missing. Um, I, that's very, very important. Now, a lot of these feasibility studies out there, by the way, are, are, are trash. You got to be really careful that you're dealing with somebody that knows it or whatnot. But if you have questions and you're not sure about it and you're worried, I don't want these concerns that are always going to be there to not allow you to move forward, not to have action. So when I got started, the way that I hedged about not knowing my own stupidity, my fears, which were driven by unknowns, which will always be there, was to get third parties that were smarter than me to confirm attorneys, um, feasibility studies, CPAs, local real estate agents, you know, all these people to confirm um, my action and to tell me. So uh, when I would go sit down with my, let's say our CPAs, Oh, this is great. What am I not seeing? I don't care what's great about it. What's wrong with it? Mm -hmm. Where could this fail? What am I not seeing? If I, I obviously know the things that are right with it. That's why I want to do this deal. But walk me through all the things that are wrong. And just because I know that something's wrong or something's going to go bad doesn't mean I won't do the deal. That's not what I'm saying. I just need to know if there's landmines and to avoid them or if they're gonna sink it, or if it's something that I should walk away from. So the two biggest risks in self-storage we have on a macro side and then a micro risk, it really does come down to, I still believe self-storage, right? Now, outside that, the premise of different changing markets, or uh, if we talk about large trends within the United States and things, most of the trends I believe fortify and solidify self-storage. I do have a very big fear that I just don't think anybody's talking about with the correlation of interest rates and occupancy and the housing market and storage. We're in inflation. Interest rates are going to have to rise. And I don't know what that does to the housing market. 
And I don't know what that does to storage because as people expand, move, travel, move around, self-storage expands. Occupancy rise and rates go up. As the housing market contracts, so does self-storage. Self-storage was dead for years until the housing market picked back up after 2008. So mostly it's self-storage, outside self-storage, things that I'm very interested in looking at, concerned about now, uh, effect of interest rates on our drivers that communicate self-storage. With that said, though, I don't know any of that, that. I don't have those answers, but I'm aware of it when looking at the place that I go. But that all drives down once again into the micro. I'm looking at current competition. I want to confirm occupancy with growing rates. We're looking at the um, how they performed, where they performed, right? I'm looking at overall market, general, specific market data, consolidation of risk. Is this a lumber town that has one employer? And if that lumber mill goes under, it's dead. That's way too much risk, obviously, for me. Diversification, employment, rising demographics, those things are important. Um, and then third, future demand. So are there people building? right? So did we have new inventory come on board? Where's that new inventory coming from? How is the utilization of that storage facility? What's happening within it, right? And if we have a contraction, a downside or a turnaround, what is going to happen? So if I have two new facilities coming to the market and interest rates rise and the housing market slows down, and this is in a market that has been growing. So a lot of the growth is coming from people moving in and new housing and that all stops. And I now have, let's talk about 200,000 square feet on the market of net rentable square feet. How am I going to compete with that? What's going to happen? Because what happens is those people that are just opening up, they go down to bare bone price. It doesn't even matter. I'll give it away for free. Just move in. And now I have to compete with that. So then I drive and it's a downward cycle, right? The best measuring tool to do this is I have, we call it our percentage of change, um, which equals to me more of the impact or effect. So if you have a million square feet on the market, and somebody is building, you have three facilities at 500,000 net rentable square feet coming onto that market. That's a 50% increase in demand. And there is no way that I can know what an increase of 50% demand will do on a given market. So the impact associated with that square footage is unknown. And that's in a good market. That's in good times, like right now, and that's unknown. Now, if I change that and I go, okay, we have a million square feet, somebody else is building, right? And they're building um, 50,000 square feet, right? So that's a 5% increase in overall inventory. And this market has been growing at a 3% a year, 2% a year, um, and it hasn't had mass vacancy for years, then it's, it's irrelevant. That 5% will not do anything. I need to understand, is that next door to me though, right? And then I need to get really, really micro. But those are general ways that we're looking at it. We Confirmation from other people, if you're talking feasibility, everything like that, market analysis, future, current competitors. And we're trying to make sure that the threats attacking self-storage or what could attack for in self-storage, number one, the primary concern is self-storage, right? Two are more things that are out of your control and bringing it all down to micro and micro moves. I love that, man. I love how you div divided that into those two sections, micro and macro, and, and focusing on what you can control, not what you can't. And uh, focusing on all those aspects of that micro aspect that you covered is is so key in what I think so many people get wrong. And I mean, we see this even in the markets that we're in. I mean, we just uh, a few months ago sent letters and all kinds of things to city councils and mayors and things like that, because there was going to be a potential increase in a given market in uh, of of at least 50% or more, uh, depending on the, the radius that we were 
we're looking at. I mean, at a certain point, it was like 134% increase of supply on that certain market. And um, it's just wild because, uh, again, you have this issue with a lot of these decision makers not really knowing or understanding the asset and what they're approving or not approving of. Um, you have people that are going in and trying to develop and build these things that, again, they don't even understand the asset. They don't understand the supply, demand, the industry, that market. Um, it's just like AJ's talking about. It's this build it, they will come mentality. It's this, oh, it did fantastic in you know, the Great Recession, so it's going to do fantastic no matter what. Uh, it's just very skewed. And uh, that rundown of, of just exactly what you need to be looking at and what those factors are, just beautiful. Yeah, it's, a, it's an important topic, one that a lot of people don't want to talk about. Um, but once again, guys, we talked about this the first. This is why we do these things. We hope that you guys can be educated because you know those examples that I told you, somebody comes in and builds 200,000 square feet and then tanks it. Don't do that in my markets, everybody. If you're coming into Come storage, <laughs> don't ruin the game for everybody else. Build a good product where there's high demand, right? So once again, you understand why we do so much of this content, why we are founding members of Store Local. It's because the number one risk that we can find is storage. It's bad operators building in spots where they shouldn't be building and destroying markets that have a really hard time to recover from. And that's a lose for everybody. And for us, you know, in the next three years, Gee, we're going to be in, I don't know, half of the United States and all the states and major mar markets, small markets everywhere. So for us, this is a really big deal. Mm -hmm. I'm not focused on one market. I need the markets that we're in across the United States to be healthy for decades because I'm not a short-term yep. guy. I'm not flipping. I'm not looking for a quick. This is our career. This is what we do. And so for me, the better I can make the self-storage industry the more money I'm going to get paid and the wealthier I'm going to get paid. So hopefully our resources as far as content, there's also stuff on Instagram, YouTube, um, as well as feasibility studies, go on to self-storage income to see what we're doing there. We're trying to just provide as much tools as possible to help everybody be successful. Exactly right. All those links are in the show notes and uh, leave us your comments, your reviews. Love seeing those come through. If you guys just take a quick second, leave us a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Uh, all that support helps us get this stuff out to you guys and continue to maintain that that path and that direction to building a everlasting self-storage industry uh, alongside you guys. So with that said, thanks so much, everybody. We'll catch you next time. Thanks, everybody.